This is the California Slap Law Podcast, Episode 12. Today, we're going to discuss three strategies for bringing an anti-slap motion when the slap allegations of the complaint are unclear. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 12th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. We are a boutique firm with a primary emphasis on First Amendment and media law, defamation, and of course, anti-slap motions. We've been doing this for more than 20 years. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call me at 714-954-0700. That's 714-954-0700. Or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. And if you ever find yourself on the wrong end of an anti-slap motion and are facing attorney's fees, be sure to give me a call. Thus far, when I've been brought in to challenge an attorney's fee motion, I've always been able to get a reduction in the fees and often a very significant reduction. Of course, this is not a guarantee of results and your mileage might differ. And speaking of motions for attorney's fees, I'm very excited that today I get to tell you the punchline from one of my cases that I've been reporting here on the California Slap Law Podcast. I'll provide a quick summary in case you did not hear the prior episodes. Beginning back on episode 9, I believe, I began telling you the tale of a big company represented by a big law firm who is suing my client to avoid paying money that is owed and to prevent my client from competing. Now, my client went off and started his own business, so evil company stopped paying certain residuals that were due and is claiming our client is using trade secrets. I explained that all the allegations are nonsense and evil company is just trying to do this to wear down my client. And as I explained, in these sorts of cases, the primary methods of harassment are through the use of discovery and usually a request for an injunction. Now, we defeated evil company on the injunction request, So the company was using discovery as its harassment tool of choice. But then my client issued a press release about the case and how we'd been beating evil company like a rented mule at every turn. And evil company took umbrage with that and amended its complaint to allege four causes of action for defamation. Now, the amended complaint was a clear slap, and we responded with an anti-slap motion, thereby depriving opposing counsel of the ability to continue to use discovery as harassment tool. I predicted that opposing counsel would seek leave to conduct discovery, and they did, but I never imagined that they would ask not for discovery on the slap causes of action, but on everything other than the slap causes of action. I successfully opposed that motion, the motion that they brought seeking leave to conduct discovery, and opposing counsel was was thereby left with no ability to conduct discovery and really no ability to harass my client. So that brings us to the latest development. You're up to speed now. I predicted that opposing counsel would dismiss the defamation causes of action so they could return to harassing through discovery. It just made sense. They're, they've now run up against a brick wall. We filed the anti-slap motion. They're prevented from conducting any discovery. And their causes of action were so clearly a slap, I just assumed they would finally come to their senses and dismiss the slap causes of action so that they can go back to the discovery. My partner, on the other hand, said that would never happen. She felt the attorneys were just too arrogant to ever admit the mistake of filing a slap. They would stick in there till the bitter end until we finally won on the the anti-slap motion. Well, it turned out we were both right. 
How can we both be right, you ask? Well, opposing counsel found a way to steer a course between the two options, at least in their own minds. You see, there was a status conference scheduled in the matter, and opposing counsel tried to use that opportunity to re-argue the motion for leave to conduct discovery. They claimed that I had misled the court when I claimed they had no right to conduct discovery while an anti-slap motion was pending. Yeah, I know. Don't try to make sense of it. What, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, we have the absolute right to conduct discovery while there's a discovery stay. Yeah, it doesn't really make much sense. But predictably, the court was unmoved, so opposing counsel tried a new tactic. Opposing counsel said they were going to move to dismiss the defamation causes of action if the court would agree to let them conduct discovery. Now, understand this is in state court. You don't bring a motion to dismiss a claim. You just file a request for dismissal, and the court told them as much. You don't need leave to dismiss a cause of action. And if you dismiss the causes of action that are the subject of the anti-slap motion, the stay is automatically lifted. You don't need any involvement from the court. So based on that conversation with the court, opposing counsel slunk back to their offices. They always show up with multiple attorneys, so there were multiple attorneys slunking. And once they got back to their office, they prepared two documents. They prepared the proper request for dismissal form dismissing the four defamation causes of action. But that apparently stuck in their cross. Again, multiple attorneys, so there was more than one craw. That stuck in their cross. They had to have a way to explain that they'd not done anything wrong. So they prepared a second document. This was a typed out document, which they also called a request for dismissal. These guys are really entertaining. They did the whereas routine, and it went something like this. On this typed out form they prepared, they said, Whereas on such and such a date, the defendant published a false and defamatory press release about the plaintiffs, and whereas the plaintiffs filed a First Amendment complaint that contained absolutely legitimate causes of action for defamation, and whereas defendant filed a frivolous anti-slap motion and misled the court about the ability to conduct discovery while an anti-slap motion is pending, and whereas the plaintiffs do not want the matter delayed by the inability to conduct discovery, and here's my favorite one, and whereas the court has granted leave to conduct discovery conditioned on plaintiffs dismissing the defamation causes of action, plaintiffs therefore request dismissal of causes of action 11, 12, 13, and 14. Then they added, this request should not in any way be taken as a statement that these causes of action lacked merit. Again, in keeping with the entire action, it was just all complete and utter nonsense. But I guarantee you, for the remainder of the action, they will claim that their defamation claims were totally legitimate and that their motion for leave to conduct discovery was actually successful. It was just conditioned on dismissing the slap claims. That entire exercise was just a transparent attempt to save face for filing the slap in the first place. Now, the story still has one more chapter because we filed our motion for attorney fees that we incurred bringing the anti-slap motion, or at least preparing and filing the anti-slap motion. It'll be really entertaining to see how they try to justify the defamation causes of action and when they fight the motion for attorney's fees. But the good news is we won the day and the evil company uh, did not prevail and had to dismiss these uh, bogus causes of action for defamation. So the anti-slap statute did its job. So in the case just discussed, the four causes of action for defamation absolutely screamed slap. But what if you receive a complaint that isn't quite so clear? Sometimes you'll receive a complaint that is so poorly written that its ambiguity almost makes it immune from an anti-slap motion. You just won't be able to even show the court why these allegations constitute a slap. As an example, an anti-slap motion I filed this week will illustrate what I'm talking about, and then we'll get into the three techniques I've developed to deal with this type of complaint and the pros and cons as to each. 
Now, in this illustrative case, this is another case where the company is trying to keep my clients down and their former employers and the company is trying to keep them from competing. They are suing under a number of theories, but I'll just focus on the cause of action for intentional interference with economic advantage. The complaint alleged only that my clients, after leaving the company, contacted a number of individuals and entities about the company, lied about the company, and as a result, the company suffered damages. Well, what do you do with a complaint like that? There could be a slap hiding behind that very nonspecific allegation, but to bring an anti-slap motion at this point, you'd almost have to speculate about what plaintiffs meant by that allegation. Here are the three techniques I employ, and I call them demur, discovery, and damn the torpedoes. With the demur approach, I just demur to the complaint and hope that the amended complaint will be more specific. In one case, for example, I sent a cease and desist letter to the defendant along with a copy of the complaint that had not yet been filed. When the defendant did not respond, I served the complaint and his attorney responded with an answer and a cross-complaint. In the general allegations of the cross-complaint, it discussed the fact that the defendant had received my cease and desist letter and complaint, and then there was an allegation for intentional infliction of emotional distress that incorporated those allegations by reference. But there was no, but the complaint, the cross-complaint, was completely unclear on what had caused the emotional distress. I suspected that defendant was claiming that the cease and desist letter and the complaint had caused him stress, and that would be a clear slap, but I wanted it to be clear before bringing my anti-slap motion. If I just filed the anti-slap motion at that point, there was sufficient wiggle room that the cross-complaint, the defendant could have said the cross-complaint means something other than what I am alleging in my anti-slap motion. So I demurred to the complaint, claiming lack of specificity and failure to state a claim because the facts in support of the IIED claim were not sufficient, and the strategy worked. To avoid having to file an opposition to the demur, the defense counsel filed a first amended cross-complaint, and that stated very clearly that the emotional distress had resulted from my letter and the draft complaint. I was then able to file the anti-slap motion, and the cross-complaint was stricken. Now, there's a couple of cons to this approach. The biggest con is that you might miss the opportunity to file the anti-slap motion. You only have 60 days to file the anti-slap motion from the date of service of the complaint or cross-complaint. Now, given current court schedules, it's almost certain that by the time your demur is heard, you will be beyond the 60 days. That's fine if the demur is sustained and the plaintiff or cross-complainant is ordered to file an amended complaint because then the 60-day clock is reset. But what if the judge overrules the demur? Then you will have to answer, and the time to file an anti-slap motion is lost unless you seek leave to file a motion beyond the 60 days. Now, also, although it has never happened to me, if you force plaintiffs to amend the complaint to add more details, opposing counsel may see that he's creating a slap, just as it's going to make the slap clearer for you in the court as opposing counsel drafts this new complaint or cross-complaint, it's going to become clearer to them, presumably. In this case, I thought for sure that when opposing counsel actually had to type the words, plaintiff alleges that he suffered emotional distress from being notified that he would be sued if he did not pay the amount owed, that opposing counsel would realize he was creating a slap, but apparently not. Or maybe he just thought he could overcome the anti-slap motion. He did later argue that the letter and draft complaint were not protected by the anti-slap statute because I demanded money, and in his mind that made it an extortion letter under the meaning of Flatley versus Morrow. Flatley versus Morrow. Obviously, that argument did not work. The second approach when you get a poorly drafted complaint that you think may be hiding a slap is the discovery approach. It's the same basic concept as the demur approach, but instead of using a demur to determine what the allegations mean, you use discovery. Now, with this approach, you have to move quickly since, again, you're facing a 60-day deadline. 
Now, let me talk a little bit about the discovery deadlines and when you can commence discovery. A plaintiff cannot serve discovery until 10 days after the complaint has been served, but the defendant can propound discovery at any time. I'm surprised, based on the number of objections that I receive, how many attorneys are unaware of the discovery timing. Let's use as an example the case of interrogatories. Code of Civil Procedure section 2030.020 provides, quote, A plaintiff may propound interrogatories to a party without leave of court at any time that is 10 days after the service of the summons or appearance by that party, whichever occurs first. So, as I said, the plaintiff has to wait 10 days to propound interrogatories after service of the complaint, unless defendant happens to appear in the case sooner. The reasoning is that the defendant has to be given a little time to find counsel before plaintiff can start bombarding him with discovery. But listen to what CCP section 2030.020 says about defendants. Quote, a defendant may propound interrogatories to a party to the action without leave of court at any time. Let me say that again. A defendant may propound interrogatories to a party to the action without leave of court at any time. Notice it said nothing about service of the complaint. Notice that it said nothing about appearing in the action. Clearly, a defendant can serve discovery after service but before appearing in the action. But the ability to conduct discovery is even broader than that. Sometimes plaintiff's counsel will file a complaint in a hurry, perhaps to beat a statute of limitations, intending to amend the complaint before serving it. I see that happen a lot. A plaintiff can take up to 60 days to serve a complaint, and it may be the intention of plaintiff's counsel to use the full 60 days to get his ducks in a row before serving the complaint. There is nothing under the code that requires service before defendant can conduct discovery. Often, for whatever reason, my client is aware that the action has been filed but hasn't yet been served. If it's appropriate under the circumstances, I will go ahead and propound discovery before ever being served. I've never had to bring a motion to compel under these circumstances, so I've never had this technique tested. And if opposing counsel does balk, I just agree that they can answer the discovery on some mutually agreed date. But here's the cool thing. Many attorneys, when served with a bogus complaint, want to do a little saber rattling and they respond with a demur or a motion to strike to set the tone that they're really going to mount an aggressive defense. But if you follow that approach, then you're in for a penny and you're in for a pound. You've appeared in the action and the deadlines are attaching because now you've appeared in the action. With pre-service discovery, you can send that same message without appearing in the action or even paying the first appearance fee. So you can show that attorney right out of the gate that you intend to mount an aggressive defense. So back to the discovery approach. You have to move quickly because you only have 60 days to propound the discovery, get back any responses, fight about those responses, and finally get some real responses. I recently used this approach successfully in a case where my client was sued for defamation, but I knew from the client that all the alleged defamatory statements had occurred more than one year prior to the complaint and were therefore barred by the statute of limitations. Plaintiff's counsel apparently knew there was a statute of limitation problem because he pled the complaint in a way that scrupulously avoided setting forth the dates of the defamatory statements. I immediately answered the complaint within days of service to keep plaintiff from amending without leave of court. And at the same time, I propounded discovery demanding that plaintiff identify when every defamatory statement was made. Now, as I thought might happen, plaintiff's counsel anticipated where I was going. And although he gave the dates of the statements alleged in the complaint, which were barred, he threw in a throwaway phrase that said, on information and belief, plaintiff alleges that these same statements were made to others in the year past. But with that response, I was free to bring the anti-slap motion. He tried to create some wiggle room with that claim that some statements have been made in the past year, but with the anti-slap motion, he'd have to prove it. 
See, a demur would not have worked under those circumstances to dispose of the action because all allegations are taken as true and the complaint did not allege when the statements were made. A demur might have been sustained and then plaintiff would have had to amend to set forth the dates, but this discovery approach was faster and more certain. Now, sometimes a lazy judge will overrule a demur and just say, well, you can find out about all the dates through the discovery process. If the judge does that to you uh, by way of a demur, then you're sunk. So I could have demurred, which would have allowed the plaintiff to amend, and then I would have had to demur again, but then I'd be way beyond the 60 days. As anticipated, plaintiff could not prove any statements had been made in the past year, and our motion was granted. So we've discussed the demur method and the discovery method, so that just leaves us with the damn the torpedoes method. I gave it that name because it sounds cool and it starts with a D. I could have also called it the direct method, but that doesn't have the same nuance that I'm going for. And this is the method I used just this week with a case I discussed earlier. Remember, the the complaint I'm talking about here alleges only that after my clients resigned, they said things to other people and entities that interfered with plaintiff's business. So I conferred with the client and he identified everyone with whom he'd had discussed the matter. All of those discussions were privileged. A point lost on many attorneys when they bring a claim for intentional interference with prospective economic advantage is that the conduct must be wrongful. Every time Coke says it tastes better than Pepsi, Coke is intentionally interfering with Pepsi's prospective economic advantage. But that's not tortious conduct because there's no wrongful act. Taste is subjective, so Coke can say with impunity that it tastes better than Pepsi. A recent example you're probably painfully aware of if you have an iPhone Uh, When the iPhone 6 Plus came out, somebody grabbed an iPhone 6 Plus. I I don't know who has the kind of money to conduct these uh, video experiments, but somebody took an iPhone 6 Plus and bent it, just showed, uh, videotaped himself bending the phone. And that immediately created this urban legend that iPhone 6 Pluses are easy to bend. If you stick them in your back pocket or whatever, they'll, they'll, they'll bend on you. I call it an urban legend because I have the iPhone 6 Plus and it sure doesn't bend when I keep it in my back pocket. But that caught on. It it gained a lot of traction. And I have no question that the person posting that video impacted the sales of the iPhone 6 Plus. They were still huge, of course. But uh, I, I can tell you that if I got on an elevator and I pulled out my iPhone 6 Plus at the time, the first response from others in the elevator was, oh, is that thing, you got one of those, Doesn't don't, don't those bend? So it really did catch on, and I'm sure it knocked down a couple of sales. The point is, that's not wrongful conduct. He's, he's entitled to get on and do his little video bending an iPhone 6. He's entitled to have his opinion whether that means the phone uh, is easy to bend. And the fact that it causes injury to a company doesn't create sufficient grounds for a lawsuit. I know it seems obvious, but I see intentional interference claims over and over and over again where the attorney has completely lost sight of the fact that there has to be wrongful conduct. Well, so it is here. If my client spoke to an investor and told him that he does not think he should invest, that's protected under the common interest privilege. It's not wrongful conduct unless plaintiffs can show malice. And by the way, the courts have held that publicly traded companies are always a matter of public interest under the SLAP statute in terms of discussing whether or not they're a good investment. So this was a perfect candidate for the damn the torpedoes approach because I knew based on the conversations that my client relayed to me, there was simply none of them that wouldn't fall under some privilege. Now, we could have conducted discovery to learn who these people are that my client supposedly spoke to, but there's no need to go that route here. We can cast the complaint as a slap and then leave it to the plaintiffs to show otherwise. And here's what I mean. 
I filed the anti-slap motion and I argued, plaintiffs state that defendant talked to individuals and entities and interfered with plaintiff's business. Well, defendant only spoke to X, Y, and Z, and for the following reasons, each of those conversations were protected speech falling under the anti-slap statute. Therefore, the causes of action should be stricken. So we took the complaint as alleged and showed that the only possible interpretation of those words would make the complaint a slap. It will now be plaintiff's burden to try and show that they meant something else by those allegations. If they come back and argue that the people we identified are not the ones they were referring to, then they will need to identify those other people and explain why it's not subject to some sort of privilege. It's actually very very entertaining because they're caught in a catch-22 because who could they identify who would not be subject to the common interest privilege yet would be so interested or involved with the business that it would hurt the business for them to receive this information? In other words, let's say in response in opposition to the anti-slap motion we filed, they provide a declaration from a taxi driver who claims that my client said disparaging things about the business during a drive to the airport. But there's nowhere to go with that. If he wasn't a potential investor, then the comments interfere with nothing. If he was a potential investor, then he falls under the common interest privilege. I love this approach because it was quick and easy, and unlike the demur and discovery approaches, it immediately locks in the complaint before it occurs to plaintiff's counsel to amend it. Now, the only potential downside is that if you bet wrong on the interpretation of the words, plaintiffs may find a way to weasel out and then you have incurred the cost of the anti-slap motion. But here's why I don't think that's much of an issue. This was a pretty quick and easy anti-slap motion. The conversations were clearly protected and clearly fell under the anti-slap statute. All I needed, therefore, was to write up the legal analysis and attach a declaration from the client setting forth those conversations. Also, at worst, the motion will act as an early motion for summary judgment. Before we even conduct discovery, plaintiff's going to be required to put all his cards on the table in order to prove why he is more likely than not to prevail in the action. Now, listen carefully. As Hans and Franz would say, hear me now and believe me later. The damn the torpedoes approach only works if you're presenting a completely plausible interpretation of the complaint. I'm not suggesting for a second that you should file an anti-slap motion that proposes some tortured interpretation of the ambiguous complaint just to make it appropriate for an anti-slap motion. If you do that, the court could find that the motion was frivolous and award the other side attorney's fees. So there are the three ways to deal with a poorly drafted complaint that you just know is hiding a slap. It's good to be back with you. I try to do this weekly, but sometimes the demands of a busy legal practice get in the way. Stick around after the music and I'll let you in on a little secret about why my law practice is busier than ever. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. If you have no interest in law firm marketing, I'll say my goodbyes now and see you next time. But if you have any interest in the topic, stick with me and I'll give you a tip that can have a huge impact on your practice. Hold on a second while I take off my anti-slap hat and put on my legal marketing hat. I publish a blog called Your Own Law Firm, which contains many great articles on promoting your law firm. If you're interested, be sure to go to yourownlawfirm.com, yourownlawfirm.com. And I tell the story there of how this podcast has helped to promote my anti-slap practice. One thing I did not anticipate was the SEO benefits that this podcast brings. 
If you do an internet search for the term California slap law, my website, californiaslaplaw.com, comes up number one on Yahoo and number one on Bing. But apparently I must have dated Google's girlfriend or something because that website was nowhere to be found. And it really made no sense because Google should love californiaslaplaw.com. It's loaded with content, so under Google's Panda and Penguin algorithms, it should rank very highly. I have a static site devoted to anti-slap law with just five pages of content, and that always appears on page one of Google, but californiaslaplaw.com does not. And then I launched this podcast. When Google returns search results, it likes to show a mix of returns, including websites, blog posts, scholarly articles, and it likes to show some form of media, whether it's a YouTube video or a podcast. This podcast is available from a number of podcasting hosts, such as iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and, and a one called Spreaker. So I run periodic searches in all of my practice areas to make sure my websites are ranking well. I ran a search that a potential client might use to find an anti-slap attorney, and here's what came up on Google. The static website I just told you about came up in the number one position. That site always ranks well, but to keep it from being quite so static, I had set it up so it takes the feed from my California Slap Law website. In other words, the last 10 articles, the last most recent 10 articles uh, from California Slap Law appear on one of the pages of that site. But here's what's really interesting. Since my podcasts appear as blog posts, that episode appeared on the static site, and that was enough to boost it to number one. But then things get really interesting. The iTunes listing for the podcast appeared in the number two position. The Stitcher listing for the podcast appeared in the number three position, and the Spreaker listing was number four. Then sitting in the number five position was the California Slap Law blog. Because of this podcast, I owned five of the ten positions for my practice areas on a Google search, and they were all in the top five. Now, please, no emails about spamming. This is all Google's doing. The, the podcast has to appear on the various services since different people use different hosts. So I have no control over Google's decision to present them in this way. But hey, I'll take it. Now, here's the really cool thing. Now, when I search for just the term California slap law, my website finally appears on page one of Google's search results. Apparently, Google still hasn't completely forgiven me for dating its girlfriend or whatever because my website bounces between numbers 8 and 10 on the search results, but at least I'm finally on page 1. For all these reasons, I recommend strongly that you add a podcast to your marketing mix. If you have any interest in starting a legal podcast, I walk you through the entire process complete with videos at my website, yourownlawfirm.com forward slash podcast. Yourownlawfirm.com forward slash podcast. Now, you can spend thousands on the equipment to record a podcast, but if you go to that website, I'll show you how to set up the recording system for about 100 bucks. Thanks again, and I'll be talking to you soon.